Well, friends, let's stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our new series through the life and ministry of David as we come this morning to perhaps the best-known Bible story of them all, David and Goliath. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, beginning in verse 2 of 1 Samuel 17. And Saul and the men of Israel, they were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines, they stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear, it was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood, and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But... If I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul and then back to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And David, I'm sorry, and Jesse, back at the ranch, and Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. I'd like to know 
they're still alive. Verse 19. Now, back at camp. Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and he left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach and shame from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered, answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, if you were to look at pictures of Civil War generals and their staff, one clearly stood out from all the rest. General-in-Chief of Union Forces One, George B. McClellan. In addition to being tall, dark, and handsome, and believe me, folks, if you look at pictures, George McClellan looked the part. He was also a master organizer and motivator. The morale of his men was incredibly high. There is an argument to be made that there has never been a better trained, organized, and equipped fighting force than the one under George B. McClellan. He looked amazing. His training was amazing. There was just one small problem. George McClellan wouldn't fight. He looked good. He arrayed his men in battle, but he would not take the fight to Robert E. Lee, even though he had superior forces and provisions and weaponry, he would not go after Robert E. Lee and fight him. And that frustrated Abraham Lincoln to no end until he replaced him with what looked to be his polar opposite in almost every way, Ulysses S. Grant. Grant did not look the part of a general. If you look at pictures, he was sloppy and slovenly, but he was brilliant, and buddy, he had an appetite for a fight. And he took the fight to Robert E. Lee. 
Israel's military situation in our text today is pretty similar. The fighting forces of Israel, they are arrayed in battle gear. And they have a king who is tall, dark, and handsome. His name is Saul. There's just one problem. Saul wouldn't fight. Saul would not go out to meet Goliath in battle. The irony of it is, is Saul was Israel's Goliath. Saul was how much taller than everyone else in Israel. He was a head taller than everyone else. He was Israel's champion, but he wouldn't fight. And the only person who would didn't look the part at all. This is one of the most fascinating passages in the entire Bible. Look with me at our text, verses 2 and 3. I realize there's a lot of text today. When you get to panel 6, you might need to take a breath, okay? I wouldn't do this, but this is the Word of God, and it truly is one of the most fascinating stories in the entire Old Testament. Every sentence is important and carries the narrative along. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. And Saul, he's the general, he's the king. Saul and the men of Israel, they're gathered, they're camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. In verse 1, we realize the Philistines, they're the aggressors. Verse 3, the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Now, the background to this conflict goes years back. When the Israelites were led into the land by Joshua and they took over Canaan, they could not drive out some of the original inhabitants. The Philistines were part of the original inhabitants of Canaan. They were the coastal people. They were very capable very cultured. They had access to iron that Israel did not. They had superior weapons and armor, and they wanted more access to land and resources, and that's what most wars are fought over, right? Access to land and resources, and the Philistines wanted more. And where they meet, the Valley of Elah, I would encourage you later, go online and Google the Valley of Elah. And there are, there's marvelous drone footage of precisely where this battle was fought. Okay, there is this huge valley between what we would describe as hillsides or bluffs. So don't think of like Mount Everest on one side and another large mountain like that on the other. Think of them as large rocky hillsides. And there really is this natural flat, huge, expansive valley in the middle with a wadi. A wadi is a dried riverbed that would have gone right beside the Israelite camp where David would have gotten his five smooth stones. And so you have these two armies camped opposite each other, huge valley in between. Verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits 
and a span. Six cubits and a span. Do you know how tall that is? Six cubits and a span is over nine feet tall. Now, even before, I'm going to say something that may trouble you to some degree. Um, how's that for a little prologue there? Um, even the most conservative commentaries will tell you there is a dispute between manuscripts about just how tall Goliath was. So, in the Hebrew Old Testament, we call it the Masoretic Text, it says he's over nine feet tall. But the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is also outstanding, and Josephus indicate that Goliath is over seven feet tall which I think is probably more likely the case that Goliath is over seven feet tall. Do you know how tall the average Israelite male would have been in 1000 BC? Probably around between 5'2 and 5'5. Five five. And so here we have, I mean, so I would imagine most of you have heard of the basketball player Shaquille O'Neal, okay? Imagine Shaquille O'Neal in all his glory, 27 years old, seven foot two, 350 pounds, two feet taller than the entire Israelite army. Okay, Saul, who's a head taller than all the Israelites, probably would have been probably six feet tall or a little taller. Goliath truly was a giant. Incredible, awe-inspiring, intimidating in every way. Let's read about his armor and the tip of his spear. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. So his coat of armor weighed 125 pounds. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and he had a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. Listen to this, verse 7. The shaft of his spear, it's so thick, it's like a weaver's beam, and the spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. The spearhead weighed 15 pounds. Imagine the strength to hurl a spear that Size To say he was intimidating would be an understatement. Can you imagine me standing next to Shaquille O'Neal? I mean, I know I'm close, okay, but um, it, it, this is incredible. Aw, truly awe-inspiring how large he was, how well-equipped he was. Verses 8 through 11. Goliath, what did he do? He stood... And he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you even come out to drop for battle? Why are you wasting our time? Am I not a Philistine? Now, Philistines were impressive fighters. And he's basically saying, it's self-evident who's going to win. I'm a Philistine. Need I remind you? Am I not a Philistine? You're servants of Saul. You're a joke. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me, verse 9. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants, all of us. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, imagine this. The Philistine said, Goliath said, 
I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, we read, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Just by virtue of them being Philistines, the odds were largely on the side of the Philistines. Not to mention having a champion like Goliath in their midst. The Philistines have a much stronger army, and they know it. And Israel knows it, and that's why this is going down the way that it is, because both armies know in a regular battle, Israel has no chance. The Philistines would wipe the floor with this Israelite army. And so if you think about it, the, this is what we call, as if I'm one of the scholars, I'm not. I'm sorry, what scholars call representative, y'all should laugh a little bit, can we lighten up? <laughs> this is what scholars call representative combat. Okay, where you would, you know, allow one representative to represent your army and the other side, their army, and everything's on the line. If their champion wins, then they all win, and you are their servants. If your champion wins, then they are your servants. You would only do this, really, if you knew that you were certain to lose or you were certain to win. Because if you felt like you were going to win, if you felt like you had a great chance to win a regular battle, why in the world would you put the lives of your men into the hands of one person? You would never do that. So what's going on here really is Saul sending out one person for Israel would give Israel a face-saving way and a life-saving way to lose and live to fight another day. And for the Philistines, what was in it for them? Goliath was going to hammer whoever Israel set, sent out. And so they could win without wasting the lives of a bunch of men. So this is what we call representative combat. It's better to sacrifice one man and live to fight another day than to waste the lives of all of your men. And so Goliath is trying to goad out a man from the Israelites. He comes back morning and evening, day after day. For how many days does the text say? Forty days. He comes out and humiliates the Israelites and tries to shame them in sending out a man so we can get this over with. Very ironic that Saul is Israel's Goliath and he won't go. Look at verses 12 through 18. Now David, like we said, kind of the camera pans back to the ranch. David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man Jesse was already old, advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, the next to him Abinadab, the third Shammah. David was the youngest. Notice the emphasis there. The three eldest, they followed Saul. They were old enough. But David went back and forth from Saul, meaning he went back and forth from the army camp and then back to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So David has been going back and forth. 
For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. I'll just say that sounds quite delicious right about now. Ten cheeses? That sounds very delicious. So take them, you know, feed the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well. Bring some token from them. And so because of his age and his role in the family, David's job was to take provisions back from the family farm to his older brothers that are fighting. That's how the army was provisioned. Family members would provide them food and resources. And in the providence of God, that's how David was able to hear what's been going on. Verses 19 through 25. This is exciting. The tension continues to build. What's going to happen? Who's going to deal with this foe, if anyone? Now Saul and they, meaning the brothers and all the men of Israel, they were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David, he rose early in the morning, and he left the sheep with a keeper, and took the provisions and went, just as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line. We'll talk about this in a second. Shouting the war cry. I guess we should think like Braveheart or something, okay? Verse 21. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David, when he got there, he left the things, the things Jesse had given him, he left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them providentially, behold, the champion, we should have ominous music, the Philistine of Gath, by name, I'm sorry, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. Here's the key. And David heard him. This is the first time. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were much afraid. That's an understatement. And the men of Israel said, have you seen? Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will give him riches, enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and will make his father's house free in Israel. So that's quite an enticement. Give him great riches, give him the king's daughter, and it says free him, probably free him from taxes, from this tax burden of the king for the rest of his life. This was quite a deal. And so instead of fighting Goliath himself, Saul does everything possible to entice someone else to go. Which again, I don't think he would have ever done if he thought they had a real chance in battle to beat the Philistines. This was a face-saving way, a life-saving way to offer up a sacrificial lamb to Goliath and then they could all go home. Now think about this with me. We don't know exactly how this would have looked, but in our mind's eye, I think every day, the two armies, they come out to the middle of the Valley of Elah. 
and each side gives out their battle cry. Again, I think we think Braveheart or something like that, like you wanted to appear manly, intimidating, capable, powerful. You go out to the middle, and I think the hope was on the part of the Israelites that we can negotiate some kind of peace, okay? That the Philistines, they might get intimidated, maybe enticed to strike some kind of compromise. And so they go out face to face, they meet at the battle line until someone strides forth, okay? Goliath, and he issues out this challenge. And in response, Israel runs back to their side. No one wants to face him. But on this particular day, David hears. Look at verses 26 and 27. So again, there's no fighting. The armies come out. They meet each other, I think, hoping for a settlement. That's how David is able to run out, find his brothers, find out what's going on. That's how he overhears. Verse 26, David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And takes away the reproach from Israel. So David's kind of enticed by this. Like, okay, riches. Okay, that sounds good. Like, king's wife. Okay, I'll marry into the royal family. Things like that, you know. Free taxation for my family. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Okay, we'll come to find out that he's more concerned about the glory of God. And the people answered him in this way. In other words, Saul's offer. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. So David hears the details of Saul's offer, and he wants to know more. He's actually interested in taking Saul up on his offer. Let's go to panel six, the rest of the story. I hope you are as invested as I am. This is a fascinating story. Old Testament narrative. Verse 28, we see family dynamics in action. There is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing worse than an irritating younger brother, okay? So Eliab, the older brother, he overhears David making this inquiry. Most scholars think that David is between 13 and 15 years old. Probably a hundred pounds soaking wet. Probably all of five feet tall. Now Eliab's oldest brother, elder brother, heard when he spoke to the men like he cannot believe that his youngest brother is talking to the other soldiers. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness. What are you doing? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. You've come down to see us get slaughtered. And David said, what have I done now? That implies this is not the first time there's been a family dispute. What have I done now? Was it not but a word? I have barely talked and you're yelling at me again. What might this go back to? What has happened probably just a few years before when Samuel went to Jesse to anoint one of Jesse's sons kings of Israel? What happened to each of the seven brothers who preceded David? They were rejected until finally 
Samuel says, we're going to wait until the youngest comes in and the anoints David king. Well, that didn't go over well. And so just like earlier in Genesis when Joseph's brothers resented him, we're seeing that pattern continue. David's brothers resented him. They could not believe that he had the gall to come down and make these kinds of statements and investigate what's going on. Just him being there and talking was annoying. It's kind of like my 17-year-old's parents when we talk. It's just annoying. Sorry, editorial comment, not in the sermon. Okay, verses 31 through 33. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. So someone told Saul, hey, we got a guy. We got a guy who is willing to do this. They couldn't find someone before this. Someone gives word to Saul. Verse 32, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, because of this big blowhard. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're a youth, and he's been a man of war since his youth. David, I appreciate your desire and the sentiment, but you're a child. This guy, he's a man. He's been fighting from before you were born. Really, we should imagine in our mind's eye, David, about 14 years old, probably about five feet tall, probably about 100 pounds soaking wet. Verses 34 through 37. But David said to Saul, well, your servant, he used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, meaning by his hair, and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. For why? Because he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Now remember those words. They're going to come back into play in just a moment. End of verse 37. Saul said to David, this is how you know Saul did not believe that his army could win a regular conventional battle. Verse 37. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. You don't send a 14-year-old boy out there to fight Goliath unless you know you have no chance. This is just a faith-saving way, a life-saving way to get this over with. What is Saul doing? This tells you about Saul's character, that he sends David out. What is he sending out David to be? A sacrificial lamb. In the mind of Saul, he's sending out David as a sacrificial lamb, as a lamb led to slaughter. It's better for one man to die than for Israel to perish. Does that sound familiar? You think that could be foreshadowing anything ultimately? Verses 38 through 51. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor 
and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. You know, they didn't fit. And I don't mean like, so, like I said, the communicants today, there's not a finer group of men and women that I've seen in a long time. Daniel Crow, not going to pick on you. Daniel Crow is amazing. David would have been similar to the size of Daniel Crow, maybe just a little bit taller, sending out a young man to fight someone the size or possibly larger than Shaquille O'Neal. Fully armored, fully prepared, totally experienced. Hard to believe that Saul let him do it. Verse 39, David strapped his sword over his army. He tried in vain to go. He had not tested them. David said to Saul, this isn't going to work. I can't go with these. I haven't tested them. They can't fit. I can't even walk in this stuff. So David put them off, verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine, and the Philistine moved forward. The action is intensifying. The Philistine moves forward, came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him, and he's shocked. He's stunned. He stops. When he looked and he saw David, he disdained him. He was offended that Israel would do this. David was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? That you come to me with sticks? I mean, are you serious? You're really going to send this guy out, this boy, to fight me? Philistine said, verse 44, the Philistine said to David, come to me then, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, will you come to me? with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you, I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Look at verse 46. This day Yahweh will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Why? What's the point? So that the entire earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And so enough talking, off we go. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the Israelites mopped up the battlefield with them. 
Okay. What are we supposed to do with this text? How are we to understand this great story of David's triumph over Goliath? A number of years ago, famous writer Malcolm Gladwell, he wrote a book based on it. The book is called David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. But according to Malcolm Gladwell, this wasn't a miracle at all because David changed the rules. And when David changed the rules, David had the advantage. David won not by virtue of a miracle, but by neutralizing Goliath's advantage. David was never going to win a hand-to-hand -hand combat, so he leveraged his skills as a shepherd. And in doing so, he had the advantage. So it's not a miracle, it's just good strategy. And according to Gladwell, you too can be a David, and you can slay your Goliath. You just need to ask how the battle in your life with your boss at your work or somewhere else can be fought on your terms. He gives an example in the book of an eighth grade girls basketball team who did not know how to play basketball and they went on to go to the national championship. They couldn't dribble, they couldn't shoot and so what the coach did is he said, we're gonna just focus on two things and two things alone. We're gonna guard the inbound pass and we're gonna do a full court press. Okay, and they mastered those two things, got turnover after turnover, and went to the national championship. I ask you, is that what this story teaches? Absolutely not. This is not a story contrary to Malcolm Gladwell that teaches underdogs how to, to defeat giants. This is not a story that teaches us how to defeat our Goliath because we're not David. Who are we in the narrative? We are the Israelites who cower in fear on the hillside. We are the Israelites who have fled day after day after day in front of the taunts of Goliath. Who is David in the story? Jesus Christ, the son of David. He is the David in the story. Jesus Christ, the greater David, is the champion of God's people. And he wins the battle. We are the Israelites who flee in fear. We are the Israelites who watch as our champion strides forth and defeats our foe. This passage is not intended to teach us how to defeat the lion, the giants in our life. It's there to teach us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to teach us that he is our champion. It does it in three quick ways and will be done. There's so many ways that this passage foreshadows the Lord Jesus and his victory. This battle, this fight, it was representative by virtue of David's victory, Israel was saved. By virtue of Christ's victory, you and I were saved. We have no hope against the enemies of Israel, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have no chance. It's over before it starts. We need a champion. We need Jesus. David went forth to war as a shepherd with a shepherd's staff and a shepherd's bag. 
Jesus went forth to war as the good shepherd who delivers the sheep. David defeated Goliath with Goliath's own weapon. He takes Goliath's weapon out of its sheath and beheads him. Jesus defeats death by using death as a weapon. Isn't that amazing? Jesus used the enemy's weapon, death, against him to defeat it. Jesus used death to defeat death once and for all by conquering it. Beloved, our hope in life and in death is through our great champion, the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget it. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you and praise you for who you are and for all that you have done. Father, we thank you for this passage that foreshadows so well, so beautifully, the great and grand victory of the greater David, the Lord Jesus, who defeated all of his and our enemies in his life, death, and resurrection, Father. Help us to know that our only chance in life and in death is by following and trusting in our great champion, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is hard to believe the degree to which the gospel of the New Testament is revealed in the old. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.